This season was made possible with support from the Government of Alberta's Heritage Preservation Partnership Program and Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, Southern Alberta. Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. While looking into the unique history of our provincial parks, I want to learn about Miquelon Provincial Park and the importance of park interpretation programs to the visitor experience. I'm Glenn Vinegard. I am a professor of environmental science at the University of Alberta's Augustana campus. In uh, high school, I remember going distinctly to a counselor and did this little series of questions that develops or determines your aptitude. Anyway, he said I should be a forest ranger. In grade 12, I got my first job in parks in Kananaskis country, cleaning campgrounds and putting in gates. But soon I realized I really enjoyed other aspects of parks work. And so I became a park ranger for a couple of years in Bow Valley, and then later on a park warden at Elk Island National Park in Parks Canada system, and then also an interpreter at Dinosaur Provincial Park in Southern Alberta. So yeah, quite a diverse experience from maintenance to enforcement to interpretation. And uh, that led me thinking that there's a, a career in this and I, I really enjoyed it, especially living in these wonderful places and working with people who want to be there. And uh, so graduate school was on my mind as I thought about what the future could bring. So yeah, I did a master's project in Edmonton with uh, one of my mentors, uh, Jim Butler, and we did a project looking at the economic value of parks, especially bird watching, down at Point Pelee in southern Ontario. So that led to more projects, and then I wanted to go back for more school. And so I went to Victoria for uh, a graduate degree in geography, where we looked at a national park in Thailand and uh, the sustainability, ecotourism possibilities. So yeah, from working to research that to really help solidify my background in parks. One provincial park that I'm interested to learn about, which which is kind of your expertise, is uh, Mikalong Provincial Park. Tell me about that park. Yeah, it's a, a great park. It's a, a local hotspot for a lot of people to, to visit. Um, it draws lots of people in the sort of east central area of Alberta. It's got a long, very interesting history. It uh, was established in 1958 or 9, and um, it was suffering. There was a lot of incursions into the park, a lot of changes happening, but uh, with the designation um, and the careful protection, it's uh, become a real gem in the system. It began its life in the 20s as a migratory bird sanctuary under federal legislation to protect migratory birds going back from the United States and Canada. And um, it uh, was well protected for about 10 years until Alberta became authorized to manage its own natural resources in 1930. And so there was a, a bit of a lull in protection in the 30s, 40s, and 50s before it was finally designated as a provincial park. And in those early days of 19, the 1920s, a local naturalist by the name of Frank Farley was appointed to be the, the guardian of the park. And uh, he was a local bird watcher, educator, um, investor. He uh, conducted monitoring. He put up fences. He uh, ensured poachers weren't intruding into the area and uh, sort of set the stage for what protection could look like here in central Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he was doing a, a bird count, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you've actually kept that going, right? That's right. Yeah. He started a Christmas bird count for the Camrose area in the 20s. And when he passed away in 49, there was a, a hiatus of, of uh, counting birds. And uh, a colleague and I brought it back in 1999. So now we have interesting data to compare from 
present day, all the way back to the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, what, what sort of changes have you observed? Yeah, uh, some are human caused, some are natural. Um, back then, there were sharp-tailed grouse and lots of grouse beaks. And uh, today, we've got new things that we wouldn't have found back then, such as American crows and common ravens and Eurasian collared doves and house finches. So yeah, uh, ecosystems don't stay the same. Um, some of it's caused by human development. Some of it's natural expansion. Uh, it's fascinating to keep a watch. That's what's that's the value of these bird counts. So we can actually determine trends over time. Mm -hmm. So you actually look back at, at his records and compared them. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, they usually just had a you know a handful of people going out to count. Where we've got a a small army going out to these different zones. And and you talked about like even initially like that area was to protect birds. Was that just from hunting or? Yep, uh, and to provide habitat protection. Uh, so no development, and to provide education and. Uh, a series of reserves across the continent to ensure migratory birds have a place to travel and stay. This is uh, in an era following the 1910s and 20s. Uh, there was um, habitat change across the whole continent, waterfowl populations, which were really high profile for hunters and for conservationists, their numbers were dropping. And so this was a government response to those changing trends. And so there's a long negotiation between Canada and the United States to, to uh, agree on this Migratory Bird Convention Act. And when it was implemented, places like Miquelon were established and they appointed people like Farley to protect those places. There's a whole series across the whole continent to, to that purpose. Oh, okay. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Uh, and some of them have remained. Um, Miquelon still has portions that are uh, sanctuaries. And in the United States, we've got migratory bird refuges. And uh, now Mexico is a signatory. And so for those early stages, they protected places that were extremely valuable as migratory stopover points, habitat for waterfowl as, up, as well as uh, upland birds. And um, they gave us options for some of these parks that would come later in time. So without that intervening sort of legislation, uh, governing activities and development and protecting habitat, we would have been hard pressed to find good places to establish new parks. Um, and McClellan is a, it's a World Heritage Site, right? Or a UNESCO? UNESCO Biosphere. Biosphere. It's uh, one of the parks that encompass a larger ecosystem called the Cooking Lake Moraine, also called the Beaver Hills. So at the north end is Elk Island National Park. The south end is Miquelon Lake Provincial Park. So together they've, uh, along with the counties and other NGOs have collaborated together to um, propose and receive designation for a UNESCO biosphere. So the Beaver Hills Biosphere is the name, and it's uh, designed to be a, an approach to collaboration towards sustainable use of the area. So they try to think about um, the long-term viability of communities, um, landowners, uh, park protection, uh, agriculture, and other uses there. I'm on the science committee of the Beaver Hills Biosphere, and there are other committees that are working towards specific purposes, whether it's focused on tourism or history or uh, collaboration with uh, wildlife. So there are a couple in Alberta and 20 some across Canada and several hundred around the world. And there's uh, collaboration locally, of course, but there's also collaboration with all these other biospheres. And there's a great um, learning that can happen amongst these. So we share a lot of similarities with the biosphere in France or in Brazil or wherever. And Miquelon is also a dark sky preserve. Yeah. A dark sky preserve is a special designation in Canada. The Royal Astronomical Society of Canada uh, administers it. And there's also an international dark sky area organization. So their uh, goal is to promote awareness of the dark sky, the value of the dark sky, as well as to try to reduce uh, light pollution 
And light pollution is so prominent that we're not even aware of it because we haven't, most of us haven't experienced a really truly dark sky where the Milky Way is just vivid and spectacular in the sky. So these uh, dark sky preserves aim to promote the dark sky. And uh, we now know there's a lot of really important benefits to uh, wildlife sustainability, to human health, to uh, you know the landscape. Um, so dark skies are, are really important. My colleague and I are working on a, a new research project around dark sky tourism, where designations of dark sky preserves actually draw people in and they want to observe the auroras. They want to see the meteor shower. They want to experience the Milky Way in all of its glory. And uh, there's a lot of benefits there for people, for wildlife, as well as for local communities. Uh, for example, there are aurora watches that pop up on an app and they tell you there's a good chance of seeing an aurora tonight. And so people will go out to these dark sky preserves and there are a few examples of the parking lots in the winter at Elk Island or at Miquelon becoming full because word has gotten out and there's an amazing sight to be seen. So there's some uh, great benefits there. In the, the night, in the winter, it's great because the nights are so long. You don't have to stay up till one in the morning to see the night sky. We've also uh, looked at uh, the Jasper Dark Sky Preserve. That's another one in Alberta. And they actually have a three-week-long festival celebrating the dark sky. So we've been looking at that about rural sustainability and changes over time and the outcomes for people. So there's a lot of good benefits from nature protection, in this case, the night sky. Yeah, yeah. And tell me more about that. What, what sort of questions are you asking in that research? We're asking basic things about are you satisfied with your visit and uh, what have you learned and uh, what helps your learning, but also what are your attitudes towards dark sky? Do you think they need to be protected and what are you willing to do to help protect the dark sky? So in short, people are really satisfied with their visits. They learn an awful lot. They have really strong attitudes towards dark sky protection, but they're a little bit hesitant about doing something personally to protect the night sky. That requires a, a little extra investment. And what would that look like? Uh, it could involve simply changing your outdoor lighting, changing the kinds of lights, uh, making them scope down, uh, encouraging your local municipality to change your policies around building codes. So uh, all that's possible. And I think we have a, a lot of work to do there, but um, people are, their attitudes are strong about it. So that's encouraging. And I don't know if this is part of your research, but I also assume you know the, the dark sky is also good for, for the wildlife as well. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Many animals are especially adapted to thriving in the true night and uh, whether it's an owl hunting or small mammals foraging, uh, that's where they make their living. And so as the light night sky is polluted with with uh, lighting, they can't do as well. And uh, that has implications for those individuals, but also their populations and over time, the whole integrity of that ecosystem. So yeah, the night sky is important and uh, humans have lost touch with the truly dark sky. We can live 24 hours a day with some kind of light and we don't have to worry about it, but uh, we have evolved in a circumstance where we needed to. And uh, historically, people have cherished the night sky, lived with it, thrived in it, and uh, now we don't have that experience anymore. And Glenn, my understanding is um, at McLone, there's actually a, a research center too, right? Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, uh, the University of Alberta, Augustana campus, uh, has uh, worked in collaboration with Alberta Parks. And Using a previously used housing site, we were able to build a brand new research station at McAllen. So it's called the Augustana McAllen Lake Research Station. And part of that, through the donation of Brian Heshey, uh, we have the Heshey Observatory for Astronomy. And it's a fabulous collaboration between Parks and the University and other donors, all really, really valuable, whereby students and professors and uh, 
researchers from abroad and graduate students can all find a place to conduct research in parks. And we need to know more about the parks, of course. And uh, these provide a great learning experience for students of all kinds. So the research station has a place to stay. It's got Wi-Fi. It's got a lab, a classroom. And now we have this uh, astronomical observatory. So it's a state-of-the-art uh, observatory. You can uh, program it to target certain areas of the sky. Um, we've got great uh, weather forecasting systems. We can predict when it's going to be viewable. And we've got uh, staff people to, to support that uh, experience. So students can now uh, join into a dark sky event there as well as uh, the public. And that's amazing uh, uh, experience. So I remember seeing the moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn for the first time. And it's kind of like a mind-blowing experience to think that it's all visible with my naked eye, not naked eye, but through the telescope. But also to hear um, historical stories and indigenous stories about uh, the meaning of the constellations and to recognize that this all happens in a dark sky preserve at Miquelon. Those are really rich experiences for students and visitors alike. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about your research a bit more specifically, Glenn. Um, we kind of touched on it a bit, but maybe you can just kind of explain the research that you do. Yeah. Uh, so I teach in environmental science and I conduct research in this area of human nature interactions. And there's many ways that is expressed. I've been doing studies on ecotourism and bird watching and whale watching. And lately I've been quite interested in uh, environmental interpretation, environmental education, where um, people can go to join an event, a park interpreter, and of their own free will, it's not required, it's not part of a classroom, but it's a free choice kind of experience. And uh, it happens all across the world. It happens across Canada and it happens locally as well. So we've conducted a, a study over the last five years where we've um, looked at the outcomes of that interpretive experience. So you probably remember going as a kid or as an adult to on a guided hike or a outdoor dramatic theatrical presentation or gone into the visitor center to ask a few questions. Uh, all those are part of the interpretive experience. And uh, my, our research question was, what are the outcomes? Uh, what do people get out of it? And it turns out it is uh, important and significant. We compared people who went to an interpreter program with those who didn't. And uh, those who did attend an interpreter program had much greater satisfaction about their trips. They reported much greater learning about any aspect of the park, um, slightly stronger attitudes towards uh, park-friendly activities, and a slight change in behavior towards park-friendly activities. They didn't change in their uh, connection to place or their memories of the place. But uh, we found that even we, when we talked to them a year later, that satisfaction learning was maintained and uh, that uh, idea of positive memories about their trip rang true to them. So uh, that means that these interpretive experiences are a wise investment from the park manager's point of view. They actually help deliver really good visitor experiences. And that was important over the last uh, few years because during the pandemic, for health reasons, interpretation, which involved person-to-person -person kind of contact, uh, was cut back along with some different budgetary priorities. So if we had two years of very limited personal interpretation in our provincial parks, and that was restored two years ago, and uh, our research was one bit of information that they could use to help justify that restore restoration. And so now uh, we have a full suite of programs across the province, and uh, the visitors can really uh, access that and really Im improve their experiences. Yeah, no, it's good to know that, that it has that, that lasting impact as well, yeah. And, and with your research, like, did it change some of the interpretation programs that are offered? We're just working on that part of it. Uh, we 
analyzed the kind of program, the kind of interpreter, the kind of topic, even the size of the audience and the length of the program. And now we're doing that correlation with their satisfaction in learning. In a nutshell, we haven't published this yet, but uh, those large outdoor theater types of programs are really beneficial. There's a better return on the investment because there's a big crowd to a, a one or two interpreters at the front. But anyway, um, people love them. They're energetic, they're fun, they're engaging, there's audience involvement, there's singing, there's dancing, and uh, costumes, and they're just uh, very entertaining. It's a, a form of uh, edutainment where people uh, learn lots by having fun. And uh, we know that those two go together, learning and having fun, but they also go together with changing attitudes and changing behaviors. And uh, parks need uh, a lot of supporters, and this is one way that they can gain those supporters. So if people have a positive feeling about their experience, they're more likely to be an advocate for parks into the future. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And um, I know you had a kind of a, a memory of like a, when you were young seeing the, the theatrical productions. Maybe tell me a bit about that. Yeah. Uh, many years ago, this is perhaps uh, in, I'd say, the mid-90s, my family including my two parents, my brother, two brothers, and their children. And we all went to Kananaskis country to William Watson Lodge, and we went to an outdoor theater program at Elkwood Amphitheater. And the topic of the night was uh, squirrel ecology. It's a topic that you wouldn't necessarily think that would be offered, but uh, we went to the program and we sat down in the back. We watched the interpreters work the crowd, learning about them, generating interest, asking questions. And these are you know, wonderfully enthusiastic, charismatic university students. And uh, the program uh, started, and pretty soon we were all singing along the songs. They were dancing. They were involving kids to come up and take part in the program. And uh, throughout the rest of the weekend, and for years afterwards, we sang a couple of those songs from that interpreter program. So they lasted with us, and they really resonated. Uh, a few years ago, Pam and I went to another interpretive program, and before the, the program started, they were playing background songs, one of which was the song that we had learned in that squirrel program years before. So we laughed and laughed and uh, brought back so many great memories. So that's what park experiences can do. They can really create strong um, memories that connect you to the place, and that connection is so important for developing an appreciation of that park. And the those experiences as a child and as a teenager are one of the most important components of an adult becoming environmentally engaged. It can happen as an adult, but most of the research on adults engaged in environmentalism goes back to some childhood experience where they really connect to a place. It could be the family cabin, it could be that park camping experience, it could be a you know a, a trip across Canada, but whatever. Um, those really help bond a person to the, the place and help them want to uh, learn more, and then they appreciate more about what that place has to offer, and then they're willing to be an advocate. Um, just out of curiosity, I don't think it's part of your research, but like, how long have those, um, like those live interpretation programs? How long have they been um, a thing in in the Alberta parks? Right. Uh, there's a long history outside of uh, Canada and in Canada. Uh, began in BC and Ontario, but in Can in Alberta, uh, they began in 1968 with the first interpreter hired at Cypress Hills Provincial Park, and uh, there were. Uh, other employees doing that kind of work, but this is the one first one where they were hired to do the job. And so that uh, slowly evolved and grew over time. And Alberta now has a really strong reputation for, you know, really engaging interpretation program. Many of the areas of Alberta offer outdoor theater. And so there's a strong emphasis on that. But also um, they hire people who are really knowledgeable, passionate. Uh, they don't have to be singers and dancers, but they 
they can be, and they are they are taken uh, used in that way. But uh, people from across the country now look to Alberta as uh, one of those leaders, and uh, Alberta is a strong player in environmental education and interpretation across the country. Yeah, I guess was there any other element of your research that you wanted to share that's that's applicable to our topic? Yeah, um, I'll just refer to another research project that we took part in. Uh, this was led by Chris Lemieux from Wilfrid Laurier University, and we joined in. It was a study of what kind of benefits do park uh, visitors get out of their visits to national, uh, provincial parks. And so we looked at four parks, including Mechelon and Kananaskis and Dinosaur. And uh, we asked them what kind of uh, health and well-being benefits are they both expecting and did you receive from their visits to the parks? And it was tremendous. So uh, people really highlighted the psychological uh, well-being benefits. They highlighted the physical well-being benefits and social well-being uh, benefits. And um, the follow-up question, did you receive any of those benefits, were, were almost matching. So people like 85%, 90% people were expecting those benefits and almost similar numbers received those benefits. So what that says is that these parks have, this just reinforces the observations that we had about people going to these places during the pandemic, for example. Um, people needed to get outside, they needed to socialize, they needed to have some fresh air, they needed to have a place of quiet contemplation and so on. And so they serve a really important purpose and we need more of them. We need more opportunities. We need to expand our system. And uh, there are some international commitments that Canada has made and Alberta has made that we need to follow through on. For example, I think Alberta has about 12% of its land base designated in uh, protection. And uh, there is a commitment to achieve 17% in short order, as well as moving beyond, um, there's a goal to achieve 30% by the year 2030. And that's a very short time period away. Yeah, that's quite a quite a big jump. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, uh, well, we need to make more rapid progress. Uh, we need to get people excited to push their politicians and the bureaucracy towards that goal. The benefits that parks provide, of course, are all on the visitor front, but the benefits are important for protecting biodiversity and for alleviating the climate crisis. So these two big other crises facing us, parks can play a really important role in. Yeah, and it seems like like you've you've demonstrated like not only just the ecological benefits, but like you said, the the benefits to residents themselves, and how that could be a, a part of the equation, right? As far as should we keep parks or expand parks? I think it sounds like you know the the more that we can make that known, the, the better, right? Yeah. Um, so the people living near the parks have the opportunity to benefit by being visitors, but also they benefit by virtue of people the other visitors coming, spending money, buying local products. And uh, the wise visitor would try to support that because the local residents are really the stewards of those places um, or can contribute well to the stewardship of those places. Um, my master's project on the value of birdwatching really demonstrated that people come to Point Pelee in Southern Ontario for the month of May when the bird migration's on and uh, they spend an awful lot of money. These are well-heeled people coming from faraway places, spending money on restaurants and hotels, and rental cars and souvenirs. And uh, the local community really benefits. And if they benefit, that means they can see a reason for protecting those places and then take action towards that. If the local protected area doesn't have that attraction, they will not benefit anymore economically. So they can be an important part of rural sustainability. The rural sustainability thing really interests me. Maybe kind of help me define what that actually looks like, rural sustainability. Is it mostly just those those protected areas and, and nature, or what, what does that look like? No, uh, yeah, nature protection happens outside of protected areas too. Um, you can imagine, well, in East Central Alberta, there's a big industry around 
waterfowl hunting. And so the resource are the migratory geese and ducks that fly through. And so the places that these birds stop at need attention. And uh, without that, the hunters wouldn't come and spend their money and support guides and outfitters and hotels and restaurants. So those uh, that kind of resource is a special one. The dark sky is another one. Indigenous sites, for example, that people are really interested in need special protection um, and care and uh, appreciation of the local customs and histories. So we need to think about those as the a resource that keeps on giving, but it, it can't keep on giving unless we maintain it for the long term. So we need to think about sustainability in that long term, as well as pay attention to the other components of sustainability, which I think you might be alluding to, where we need to think about the people and the history and customs living in an area. They need to think about the flow of money through an area. So buying locally, you know, supporting local entrepreneurs rather than staying at the multinational hotel chain instead. So all those together, the, the economic side, the environmental side, and the social side all need consideration when we think about rural communities. And in Alberta, we're seeing a big need for supporting rural communities because the proportions of people living rurally are declining and uh, opportunities to maintain a rural lifestyle are few and far between. So if it comes from, in this case, uh, tourism from the natural environment, that's one option. Uh, it can come from other ways, of course, but uh, that's one where the environment and rural sustainability can uh, support each other, be have a synergy. I guess, Glenn, do you have like, I'm curious, maybe, um, like I know with your research, you're getting people's perceptions on how they feel about the parks and, and the benefits. Um, do you have any maybe like personal stories of, of people you've interacted with in your research that you can think of that um, kind of stand out for you? Any stories of people who have been particularly impacted by their visit to the park? I, uh, I think of one administrator in our local region who has a slogan about, he says, uh, parks need people and people need parks. And uh, parks need people because parks uh, have varying levels of political attention, uh, prioritization, budgets, and the list goes on. At the same time, people need parks for all these benefits that we've been talking about. We're a much richer society if we have those benefits available, the psychological, the well-being, the emotional, the social, physical benefits. Uh, yeah, and uh, in terms of experiences, uh, they can be life-changing. There have been examples of the young kid attending an interpreter program and saying, that's what I want to be. I want to be a wildlife biologist when I grow up. Or they might return home after a visit to the park to say, that was an enriching experience. Let's go again next year. It could be as simple as that. Or it could be an entrepreneur saying, I want to support this. I'm going to donate a million dollars to expanding this park or whatever. So anyway, the, the list goes on. Uh, parks can really impact people in a lot of different ways. We just don't know what when and where that will occur. <laughs> so we have to be ready and available to to support them. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if we've kind of touched on it as we've been chatting, but, you know, if, if people want to protect their parks, what do you recommend that they do? I would say the first and most important is to go to them, visit them, experience them, and tell your friends and neighbors about the places that they have nearby they can go to. That's really important. They need to be jazzed about parks and they have a lot to contribute. Uh, secondly, um, be part of uh, the support movement for parks. There are many organizations in Alberta, including the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, Alberta Wilderness Association, Nature Alberta. Uh, there are many local ones as well, and they all do really good work on our behalf. So a few dollars or volunteer hours uh, for those kinds of groups are really well spent. They can really double, triple, and quadruple in impact down the road. These are well-educated, insightful people working for them, and they can really 
work on our behalf towards uh, protecting our park system. And uh, to learn about these places, uh, we need to be anticipating what should happen in the future. New parks, you know, fixing problems, uh, changing budgetary priorities, voting strategically, all those are, are important parts of the citizen experience. We need to be involved. We can't just sort of take it for granted. There, we, If we do that, we might lose out. Yeah, because you know, I'm, I'm looking at kind of the, the heritage, some of the history around the parks. Um, why do you feel that like that's important to talk about when we're looking at protecting and preserving these spaces? Yeah, our places serve a lot of roles in society. And uh, one of them is that historical role. It's kind of like the museum in town. And these museums, you know, capture what was here uh, in many different ways. And it could be the Wildlife Museum or the Human History Museum. Uh, they capture and represent a stage of our history that we need to remember. You know, things change over time, of course, and we can't live in the past, but we want to know and be aware of and appreciate the past. One of my former supervisors, uh, Phil Dearden, wrote an article about the kinds of roles that parks play in the community. So the bank role, uh, the museum role, the zoo role, where you can see wildlife readily. And uh, these are all important. And a community would be poorer if we didn't have those working in our community. And parks can play many of those roles. Next time on Remembering Alberta Parks, I have a conversation around conservation in Kananaskis. It's prime time again to, to really look at Kananaskis and look at the history, learn from that, go back to those concepts of what the, the highest value of that region is, and then start to look forward and say, how do we manage this place to make sure that we are protecting those key values and that is a place that people can safely and sustainably access nature. You know, My Head's Remembering Alberta Parks was produced by Michael Bartz with production assistance from Shinichi Hara. Special thanks to all the guests who gave generously of their time and expertise. I'm trying to save the planet, oh will someone please save me? This season was made possible with support from the Government of Alberta's Heritage Preservation Partnership Program and Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society Southern Alberta.